All right, if you could begin making your way back to your seats, and while you do so, grab your Bibles, that would be great. Head on over to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 is where we are going to be, and we're going to be closing down chapter 1 this morning. And uh, it, was, it was several months ago, I had just gotten back from adult conference in July, and had really been feeling like the Lord was telling me to slow down our series in Philippians. Because uh, the plan originally had been we were going to tackle chapter 1 to chapter 4 from September all the way to Thanksgiving. And then start the Christmas season and then start the first of the year with something fresh. Uh, and really felt like the Lord was saying, you, you need to really slow that down. Um, and so a lot of driving back and forth to Indiana and Ohio and, and all of that then in reverse. And, and so I got back and was thinking about that. And um, as is my uh, custom, I, I, I give the, the elders what, what I'm believing the Lord is calling me to in regards to uh, the sermon series and what we're looking at um, for them to give feedback, for them to maybe say, you know what, we, we think maybe there's some other areas that would be better addressed at this point in time. Uh, so I just want that type of input and feedback. And, and we sat down at a meeting with them. Uh, and I said, guys, I think I'm going to pull back on and hit the brakes on this series in Philippians because one of two things are going to happen. Either we're going to have to go so quickly through the book to get all four chapters done in four months that we really aren't going to learn or take away much of anything, or we're going to have like three-hour sermons. And, and we don't really want either one of those. And I just was laughing to myself this week because this text along with last week's test, is one of those examples of where we'd have been here for a long time uh, because last week's verses were, were profound and weighty in the call to live as those who are worthy of the gospel. Right? To, to let our behavior demonstrate this gospel we claim to have placed our faith and trust in. And then Paul, this morning, is going to actually increase the weight of what he has to say. And this morning is going to feel, to be quite honest, pretty heavy and weighty in that significance. Um, and so last Sunday's text and this Sunday's text is actually just one big old long sentence that he put together. And so we needed to separate those so that we weren't here till like 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, not having lunch and, and I mean... It would have been not a pleasant thing for us, um, but today's text is, is a weighty one. Today's text is, is I think, going to perhaps make some of us bristle, and that's okay. That's okay that it makes us bristle, um, because I think God's Word can, can stand up underneath and, 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 and take that, those honest questions that I, th I think we might have out of today's text. And so if that's you, I don't, I don't want you to feel as if you're, you're, you're wrong in, in a sense, like there's something wrong with you, perhaps is better to say. Um, it, it could just be the, the honest reaction as we encounter God's Word and consider things that maybe we've never considered before, um, but even if you have, it, they're difficult things to consider. Um, and so that, that's, that's where we're going. So before we go any further, let's pray, and then we'll read the text, and we'll even go back to verse 27 and just roll in and loop in all of what he said to us last week as well, and then we'll 
we'll move forward from there. So please join me. Father God, we, we pray and we ask that you, would, that you would come and help us make sense of your word. God, we're, we're a people that believe that you have spoken and it is in our best interest to draw near and listen. And so, God, we want to do that. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes that see. God, increase our faith. God, I pray that you would come and you would, you would use your word this morning to instruct us. That you would use your word this morning to encourage us. You would use it to equip us. And not just us in a collective sense, while that is certainly true, but, but, but us individually. God, would you come and would you use your word and through the Holy Spirit, would you, would you come and meet with us personally today? God, we pray that you'd help us to love Jesus that much more. To pursue his glory and his fame and his honor that much more. And we pray this in his good name. Amen. Well, grab your Bibles. Let's go to verse 27 and let's read those two verses that we looked at last week. Paul says there, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. But of your salvation and that from God. So there's where we were last week. Live in a way that is worthy of the gospel you claim to have placed your faith and trust in. And he uses words and language there to to say, you know what, think about what it looks like to be a good Roman citizen, and then principally apply that to what it looks like to be a Christian. Not that the ideals of a Roman or American citizen are identical to that of a Christian, but if you think about what it would have looked like to be an upstanding citizen in Rome, there was a certain way that that thought was approached. It's the same concept in regards to our walk with the Lord. And he says, look, this is going to need to look a couple ways here. You're going to need to stand firm in one spirit. That that by and through the power of the Holy Spirit, there is a unity among you that says, we're going to hold the line. We're not going to give an inch. We are going to link arms and stand shoulder to shoulder and not budge. And while doing so, we're going to strive together with a determination to see the gospel advance. And we're going to do so without fear in the midst of opposition. Because the absence 
of fright is a powerful communicator to those who would oppose the gospel message. And Paul says, look, it communicates these two things. It communicates their destruction and your salvation. Now, all of this has been exemplified in Paul as he has been in jail in Caesarea for three years, then on a ship while still under guard, then getting his way to Rome, again being placed under house arrest, chained to a human being. I mean, he exemplifies all of this, and he's calling the believers in Philippi to do and live and be just this. And then he rolls this on, beginning in verse 29. And he says this, for it has been granted to you. Now, a better word than the word for there, a more accurate translation is the word because. He's supplying rationale to the conclusion he just made. Look, the conclusion is it's a sure sign. Fearlessness is a sure sign of their destruction and your salvation because something else is also true. And this is what he wanted them to know, and by extension, this is what God wants us to hear and learn and know as well, because it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now that word granted is a fascinating word. It means to give graciously or generously with the implication that the giver has the good intentions of the recipient in mind. It's probably just more easily translated graciously given. And this same word is translated like that elsewhere. Paul says this in Romans 8, What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The exact same word as what we have in Philippians 1.29, translated granted. If you would have looked at the original word Paul wrote, the word grace is literally in the word. There's a prefix, then there's the word grace, and then there's a suffix. Paul's saying something here. He's giving an explanation of why there is a sure sign, why fearlessness is a powerful communicator to those who might oppose the gospel, and why it signals to them their destruction, but the salvation of the believer, because God has graciously given His children something. And we're told what that something is. He actually tells us it's two somethings. For it has been graciously given to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now I want to spend just a few moments thinking about what Paul put on the bookends of what he tells us has been graciously given to us. It has been graciously given to you for the sake of Christ is one bookend that you should not only believe but also suffer for his sake is the other bookend. 
on either side of this gift that has been given to us of saving faith and of suffering, we are told that those have been given to us for the sake of Christ. Paul's saying that Christ is is benefited. There's an advantage that he receives Paul would say this in Romans 5.8, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, for our benefit, for our gain. It's the exact same word he uses here in Philippians 1.29 where he speaks to then Christ being the one receiving the gain. And so I think it... It bears asking the question, in what way is our belief for the benefit and gain and sake of Christ? And we'll get to suffering here in a moment. That, quite frankly, would be the more difficult of the two to wrestle through and with. But we're told that we've been graciously given two things. That the the sure sign of destruction and salvation... For either those who oppose or those who believe is going to be there because God has graciously given things. And those two things we are told God has graciously given is saving faith and is suffering. So in what ways is Christ benefited from us having been given saving faith? I think in many ways it is the exaltation and the glorifying, the honoring of Him, not only as we place our belief in Him for saving faith, but as we do so every day for sustaining faith. Because faith is also for our sustaining And not just simply for a one-time event of salvation. So consider this in regards to salvation. We exalt Christ by acknowledging Him as the name above every name. As the only name in whom salvation is found. So it has been graciously given to us the belief to recognize that Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And as we place that faith and trust in Him, we exalt and honor Him, which rolls up and then to the glory of God. Jesus said in John, I believe it's John 15, that he who does not honor me cannot honor the Father. He who honors me honors the Father. We place our saving faith in Him. We exalt Christ as, as the bridegroom who does everything necessary to prepare and present to Himself a bride, which is called the church. We exalt, we, we exalt Christ in that we recognize He's even now working in preparing us to be that bride to present to Himself pure and blameless. 
Something that Paul has told us in Philippians 1.6 is guaranteed to happen because he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. We exalt Christ in our faith as we depend and rely on him for fruit bearing. Look back at Philippians 1.11. We're told that Paul's prayer for the Philippian church, and by extension us, is that we might be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That word through is the word that speaks to agency. Some of you are house hunting. You buy a house through an agent. It's not the only way to buy a house, but it's, it's probably the most common way to buy a house. It happens through an agent. We exalt Christ as we acknowledge our dependence and reliance upon Him for fruit bearing. Jesus Himself said in John 15, 5, apart from me you can do nothing. This verse showed up in my personal devotions this past week, and there was an illustration that went along with it, and the illustration I found very helpful, and it, it went like this. Imagine you were a quadriplegic and only capable of talking. And then imagine you had a strong friend who decided that they were going to care for you and provide for the needs you were unable to provide for yourself. So that friend would lift you up out of one chair to put you somewhere else. That friend would help you navigate your home and get you to where you needed to be. That friend might take you grocery shopping. I mean, whatever the friend's doing, the friend is, is, is doing that all on your behalf because you are unable. And then there's another friend that comes and stops by your home. And the question then posed was, how do you make much of, how do you give honor or celebrate the work of the friend who has been caring for you? It's by allowing them to still care for you. It's not saying, well, I now have this other guest, let me try to go do this myself. It's acknowledging that I can't do anything. And these are the exact words that Jesus uses. Abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So for the sake of Christ, for the exaltation, for the honoring, for the glory of Christ, we place our continual everyday faith in Him to provide for us what we need so that there might be fruit and righteousness and Growth and maturity. We exalt Him by seeking His provision in times of need. Paul speaks to that in Philippians 1.26 where he is referencing the Philippians' needs. He says in 25, Convinced of this, that He will be released from prison, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you might have ample cause to glory in Christ. Because Paul was going to be able to provide for needs that they had. But that provision was going to be seen and for and roll up into the glorying of Jesus. We exalt Christ and as we celebrate and live for and continually place our focus and our eyes and attention on the promises and the hope that there will one, be, one day be a day of Christ 
where he will subject all things to himself, that the good work that the Father began will be completed, that he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, as he tells us in Philippians 3, 20. So for the sake of Christ, we've been given faith. We've been graciously given faith, saving faith and sustaining faith. It's the righteous live by faith. I'll be real honest with you, I'm really comfortable with all of that. I've got no theological struggles with that. Faith as a gift, I think it's clear throughout the scriptures that that is true. But that's not all Paul says we're graciously given. I bristle at the second part. I struggle with the second part because it's not just saving faith, sustaining faith that we're given. He tells us that we're graciously given suffering. And I don't like that because I don't like to suffer. I don't, I don't like to be opposed. And I, I think it creates real, honest, genuine questions. What kind of loving God would allow his children to suffer? It's a fair question. And it, it sounds and seems as if it's the exact opposite of what a loving God would do. The exact opposite of what a loving father would allow his children to experience. And I, and I just want to be clear what the text says here. Okay, Paul's not just simply saying that God sits sovereign over his sufferings, that you know, it didn't take him by surprise, that he was there and it, it, it happened in accordance to his will, even though it happened through the, 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 the real choices of somebody else. And this is true, and this is gloriously true, but that's not all that Paul says. He tells us that God is actually graciously giving to us suffering. There's something that God wants us to have that we'll only have as we receive this gracious gift of suffering. Some of you remember back to our series in Ecclesiastes last year where we, we wrestled with some of these same ideas. And, and I used a, a, a phrase in, in that week, um, which I know I personally have found helpful, um, that, that God's sovereignty is, is not a, a Band-Aid to put on a broken arm. It's, it's a weighty blanket to sit under. That I, I think sometimes we can unhelpfully throw around the God is in control phrase. And while true, we, we throw it around more like the band-aid to remedy the broken arm than the weighty blanket to sit under. In Paul's life, he acknowledges that God was sovereignly advancing the gospel through Paul's suffering. And in verse 12 of chapter 1, we're told that it's not that God found a way around the opposition that Paul faced. 
It's not as if God somehow wiped his brow and thought, wow, we really dodged a bullet there. I'm really glad he was able to get to those praetorium guards and have all of Caesar's household hear about the gospel. That's not what the text tells us. The text tells us that the opposition and imprisonment and chains that Paul found himself in made the gospel push forward in ways that it would not have pushed forward otherwise. That God used those painful moments to accomplish things. We're told in verse 19 of chapter 1 that Paul is convinced God will use all of the suffering that he's encountered for his final salvation. It will all lead to that end. This will turn out for my deliverance. And elsewhere in the scriptures, we, I think, very clearly see that God uses suffering to make us more like Jesus. He does in us a work that needs to be done that perhaps otherwise wouldn't be accomplished without this gracious gift of suffering. And we're told in James 1, 2-4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith will produce steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And I, I remember when we started that series in James last fall, and I, I remember probably it was maybe the day or two before I was going to preach this text, and, and our boys were not sleeping, and they were screaming, and I remember sitting there thinking, all right, God, somehow you have this for my good so that I might learn something through this, but I really hate it right now. I'm supposed to think about this as joy. Joy would have been falling asleep at 10 o'clock, not up at 11 with screaming children in the house. Like, that's not how I define joy. You say, no, look, I'm going to use this to produce some steadfastness. And then that steadfastness is going to grow and mature into your own maturity. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Told in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not just to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient The things that are unseen are eternal. God's doing something through what Paul would say here is light and momentary affliction. Perhaps one of the quintessential verses in regards to this and one of the most glorious promises in the Scriptures comes from Romans 8. And we know verse 28 well, but verse 29 is just as significant And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. That's 28. And then Paul continues and he tells us what that purpose is. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. See, there's the purpose. 
So God causes all things to work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And His purpose is that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the eternal weight of glory that the light and momentary affliction we are experiencing is preparing for us. That's the perfect and complete result that steadfastness leads to as we count it all joy while we face various struggles and trials. That's part of the gracious gift that suffering is to us. Maybe this will help you think about it, and I'm going to overstate the first point here. Carrie and I celebrated the fact, you prayed for and you rejoiced in the fact, that we found somebody to inflict pain on our adopted son. We, we rejoiced that there was a doctor with his own expenses willing to fly up from Tampa to Pittsburgh, to cut our little boy's heart, to saw his sternum in half, to crank open his rib cage, and then put in his tiny chest cavity tubes from his heart to his lungs. Like we rejoiced and we prayed for that, and, and like that was a good thing. And the reason why we rejoiced in it is because we knew what the need was. And the need was so clearly apparent that to really not do anything would have, would have signaled his, his death physically. And so the, the pain and the heart surgery that needed to happen, there was no question in our minds, and we celebrated it because we knew what the need was. And I, I think part of why I at least chafe at this idea of God's gracious gift of suffering being used to make me more like Jesus is I probably give myself a little too much credit. I think I'm a little closer than perhaps I am. And God who sees perfectly is doing something that I need him to do that I may not have the eyes to see at the moment. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. I don't know about you, I've felt certainly at times and in moments such as that, I know this is going to work for good, but is he good? Is he just maybe trying to look down and see me squirm? And I've shared with you before, like, there, there's just, there's a lot of, like, superstition in my heart. It is one of the things I kind of war against all the time. And in the root of that is this idea and desire to control what the uncontrollable is. And so it's, hey, if I, you know, if I do my devotions, then um, you know, this, this can be a good day. And if I, you know, if I do those things, and, or, or, or perhaps just even the recognition that, to be 
quite honest, like Carrie and I feel like we're in a really good spot in life right now. And Tobin just had an appointment a couple days ago. His oxygen numbers are like 98%, which is just ridiculous. They didn't even put him on the machines to test him because he was doing so well with all the other stuff. I mean, we, we look around and we go, like, all right. And, and yet there, there's, there's part of me that's like, when's the other shoe going to fall? Because there's this, this desire to control what I can't control. And then let's just call that what it is. There's a lack of faith in the one who does control it, that he is good, and that even if he brings me to those moments and graciously gives me those moments of suffering, he's still good in the midst of it, and he wants to do something through it. I often feel like the father in Mark 9 who said to Jesus, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. And I think this text this morning brings us to that type of place. Like we can't escape what Paul wrote that God graciously gives us saving faith and suffering. Like we cannot do justice to the scriptures and escape that truth. So what do I do with it? I feel like I've been raked over this past week in really good ways. That might sound like a really painful thing. Um, it's, been, it's been good. Paul continues in verse 30, and he says, look, you're going to be engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. Paul had been beaten and jailed in the city of Philippi from setting a woman free from human trafficking. He ended up in jail in Caesarea for three years before being sent to Rome for causing alarm in a political ruler as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment. He was the target of an assassination plot by the Jewish leaders who begged that same religious ruler or that political ruler to bring him down to Jerusalem so they could just ambush him and end all things right there and then. He ends up jailed in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier as he waited his appeal to Caesar. He's opposed while in Rome by those outside of the church and yet imprisoned for the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. He's opposed by those inside the church who sought to preach the true message of the gospel in a way that would cause affliction and harm to him. And he lived with a certain amount of uncertainty as to whether or not he would live or die at the hand of Caesar. And he says, look, you're going to be engaged in this same conflict, this same struggle and fight. As you seek to Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is what you're going to find. Jesus had similar things to say. He told his disciples in the upper room a few nights before he would die, a night before he would die, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before you. 
I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world, you're going to have tribulation. Some of your translations will say trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. You know, and I think there can be a temptation of ours. It, it, maybe not temptation in a sinful sense, but like a, a tendency to think a certain way. That when we get to a text like this and these truths, I, th- I think we can, can have a tendency on one hand to conclude that those are glorious truths for full-time missionaries and pastors. Like Phil and Sarah Martin need these truths. A couple weeks from now, October 31st, they fly to China. They are beginning to now seek to have the gospel through their ministry spoken and communicated in a nation where it is systematically opposed. Like, they need those truths. Like, they're going to find opposition. These truths are for the underground and the oppressed church members around the world. The very end of October is always the Voice of the Martyrs Sunday, where the, the not underground church has some type of emphasis and, and call to pray for the underground and the persecuted church. You know, those, they need these truths. And yet here we, we have to put these truths in the context of what Paul has said and, and said to us last week, which again is the same sentence. I mean, what we have is four verses in our Bible, is one sentence as he wrote it in this original letter. As we focus and as we pursue living like Christians worthy of the gospel we believe in, we will be engaged in the same conflict. This is not a full-time missions, full-time pastor set of truths. This is truths for the church as we seek to live worthy of the gospel. And we've tried to include that in our vision with this idea of Christ-centered witness, that, that, that we're, we're missionaries now. Where God has placed us is where our mission field is. And He's telling us, look, as you seek to be normal Christians who are going to look a little weird to the Christians who aren't that concerned with godliness, and you're going to just be an anomaly to the, to the world, you're going to be engaged in the same conflict. You're going to find that these truths just aren't for the full-time missionaries. They're weighty truths to sit under. Foundational truths that we can, we can rest in. And all of this rolls back to Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. We know the end of the story. Paul wants to see, wants us to see that we can face opposition confidently, knowing that God is not surprised by what is happening. 
That God has not just graciously given us the ability to believe. He graciously gives us suffering. He wants to work in us for His good purpose. He's sovereign over us. And He loves us more than we realize. And He is good. And I think it's just maybe an honest place to be to say, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Let's pray. Well, God, we, we confess to you that we, I, I will confess to you, this is struggle. I can look, at, I can look back at, at past moments in my life, and I, and I can see how you used those for your glory, for my good. God, there's part of me that doesn't want any more future moments like that. And I struggle and I wrestle with these things. God, I pray that you'd increase my faith. That there wouldn't be this superstitious bent to my heart. There wouldn't be this wondering when and, and, and how is, is everything going to just crumble around me. So I better toe the line so that that doesn't happen. God, I pray that you'd increase my faith, that you would increase our faith. Your wisdom unimagined. And you're good. And even what may be the intent of evil from others, you use it for our good and for your glory. So Lord, we, I come confessing, I, I got, got a lot of ways to grow in this. Please be gracious in in doing so. In Jesus' name, amen.